Will you follow while I read Romans 8, 31 through 39? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Hmm. I am sure, he says in verse 38, I think that's where God wants us to go tonight. I'm sure. This passage is talking about the only absolute inevitability in all of human history. We have no idea what's going to happen in the American presidential election in 2020. But we are sure of this. Here is why God, if you've put your trust in Christ, here's why God will never stop loving you. He never started loving you. As long as God has been God, in his heart, he has been loving you. The Bible says God is love. The Bible never says God is wrath. The Bible says we actually have to drive him to wrath. We have to provoke him and prod him. He's long-suffering, slow to anger. I mean, if we really want him to get mad at us, we can find a way. But we have to work at it. We do not have to prod him into loving us. It just pours out of him. It's who he is, his core being. It's not a decision he makes, it's his heart. That is the love this passage is about. That's the love we have been caught up into. So, you've been thinking through Romans 8 this weekend, and we come to verse 31, and the, the question is, okay, so what are the, what's the takeaway here? 
we who are not condemned in the least, we who are now freed by the law of the Spirit of life, we who walk according to the Spirit, whose minds are now drawn to the things of the Spirit, who are tasting life in the Spirit and peace with God, who are indwelt by the Spirit, whose very bodies are, have their own, we have our own Easter day looking to, to look forward to. We're learning to kill our sinful impulses by the more attractive beauty of Christ. We who find a new, I don't know what else to call it, a new intuition rising within that calls out to God, perceives God now as Abba Father, which is, in fact, that experience with God is the ongoing witness to our adoption and our coming inheritance. We who no longer freak out when we suffer, but we see in our suffering some small measure of our future massive glory. We who understand, respect, and sympathize with this whole world of futility and exhaustion and death and loss so that we groan as God carries us toward the new heavens and the new earth where we will be with Christ like Christ forever. We who therefore face reality with courage and resilience and unstoppable endurance, come what may, we who are helped in our moments of most extreme weakness and debilitation by the Holy Spirit, who translates even our groans and sighs into prayers and praise, advancing God's good purpose even in our weakness, we who are living the story that God wrote before time began, the only story in all this world that will last forever, the story of God's love for the undeserving, in Christ, for crying out loud, what shall we say to these things? <laughs> That's amazing. So with Romans 8 vividly before us, God just awakens within us through the power of these wonderful words, a new buoyancy, a spirit of cheerful confidence and whatever we're facing, a kind of um, gentle defiance. It just wells up within and we are ready to take the next step with the Lord, whatever it might be. We're ready to suffer if need be. We're ready to release our emotional grip on something in this life that is just claiming too much for itself in our hearts. We're ready to be faithful nobodies overlooked by this world as we just go on faithfully serving, forgiving, evangelizing, do we all, doing all we can for the Lord by His grace, for His glory, with zero need for big dealness in a broken and failing here and now. So we're ready to live and die for Christ, for Christ alone, for Christ fully. And in view of all these things, we do not consider a consecrated life, a life given over to Jesus. We do not consider that a sacrifice. We don't see ourselves as heroic to be devoted to the Lord. We're not impressed with ourselves. We just consider this consecrated life openness to Christ, following Him day by day, moment by moment. This is just one vast and endless mercy, grace, and privilege. <laughs> to use the secular word, can you believe our luck? <laughs> Self-pity has no claim on us because God loves even us. And He doesn't love us with the tolerance of a benevolent dictator. He loves us with 
the heart of a tender father. So of all the people in the world today, and of all the people in L.A. tonight, golly, we have so many reasons just to be just grateful and amazed. We weren't always in that newness of life I've just been describing. Cynthia Heimel, in her brilliantly entitled book, If You Can't Live Without Me, Why Aren't You Dead Yet? (laughs) She articulates so well the old mentality that we used to be immersed in. She writes, the minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute he or she becomes a monster. And then she names three movie stars we all know and enjoy. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings with whom you might lunch on a slow Tuesday afternoon. But now that they have become supreme beings, their wrath is awful. It's not what they had in mind. They fervently, more than any of us, wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, they stepped on the other guy's face in their desperate need. The night each of them became famous, they wanted to shriek with relief. Finally, now they were adored, invincible, magic. The morning after the night each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose of barbiturates. All their fantasies had been realized, yet the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and ha-ha happiness, had happened, and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. We who... uh, are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ who have a treasure this world right now can't even contain as ours already paid for in full in advance by Christ. We just see our lives differently now. We understand that whole perspective. But the giant thing that we're striving for The giant thing that will make everything okay for us is not celebrity and fame in a world where everything that is limited to this world is already doomed to futility. What we are reaching for is nothing less, not our name in lights, but a renovated universe. That's the future we're banking on a whole new sparkling renovated universe ruled benevolently, wisely, brilliantly by a whole newborn, noble, magnificent human race where we will forever romp and play and sing and dance to the glory of God. So, we can live with a little disappointment now our future is measured less than measured by nothing less than Romans chapter 8 what if we read this every day for 1 month with our morning coffee we might never forget that month in our lives 
So every one of us is going to see his or her life in some particular way. And there are really basically just two ways, as we've already seen. One way is when you see your life, as Jean-Paul Sartre put it in his play, No Exit, you are your life and nothing else. He meant you are what you make of yourself. You are the sum total of your choices. You have no excuses. You can never take a break. You have nothing beyond yourself to fall back on. Nothing beyond yourself belongs to you. Nothing beyond yourself is even relevant to you. Your fate is in your own hands entirely. And when you die, that's it. You are your life and nothing else is factored in, period. There's another way to see your life. It's when you cross the line, your heart cracks open, and you receive Christ with the empty hands of faith, and you enter into him. You, everything changes. It starts becoming real to you when you stop trying to prove yourself and control your destiny. You start relaxing because in Christ you realize with all of Romans 8 here before us, oh my goodness, there is more to you than you. The gospel comes alive to you. A new sense enters your heart that God has made you his friend through the cross. You have failed to prove yourself. You have no excuses, no defense, and so forth. There is no justification in God's moral universe for a human being like you, but Christ comes to you. Christ gives himself to you. Christ writes your story into his larger story because he lived the perfect life for you. You haven't lived. He died the atoning death for you. You can't die, don't want to die. Sartre said, you are your life and nothing else. God says you are in Christ. And you need to worry about nothing else. So we, we are going to see our, ourselves in either of these two ways. Romans 8 assures us that the real Jesus who is actually out there is big enough and good enough to redefine us by His love forever. His love Period. So what we now see in Romans 8, 31 to 39 is how patiently, oh my goodness, I've been trying God's patience since 1949. Where would we all be by now if God were not patient? What if God were touchy and explosive? We see in these verses now, 31 to 39, how patiently God loves us, how ruggedly, steadily, faithfully, powerfully, endlessly. God is not tired tonight, and He is not tired of you. God's love, we see here, is not a weak, pleading love that might or might not work out. If you are in Christ, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. So, yes, we have sinned against Him. Some of our sins are deeply ingrained habits. We, you know, we look at patterns we've been in for so long, we wonder, why am I still like this? I thought I'd be more Christian by now. 
We sin when we're capable of a better choice. We sin against the help of the Holy Spirit. We sin against the plain teaching of the, of the Bible. We sin and hurt people we care about the most. We, we might even read Romans 8, 31 to 39 and still believe that God's love is weak. And not even that stops God. The love of God is His powerful commitment to you and there is no match for that power, not even you. If you have turned to the Lord Jesus with a willingness to be loved, that's what a Christian conversion is. Okay, Lord, I'm done with fighting you. I'm willing to be loved. <laughs> he says, done. If you've turned to Christ with a willingness to be loved by him, then he promises here in the Bible to love out of you every barrier and every obstacle that you put in the way of his love. John Owen, the Puritan theologian, so long ago he wrote, a man may love another as his own soul and yet his love may not be able to help him. He may pity that man in prison but not relieve him, bemoan him in misery but not help him, suffer with him in trouble but not ease him. We cannot love grace into a child. We parents sure wish we could. We cannot love mercy into a friend. We cannot love them into heaven, though it may be the greatest desire of our hearts, but the love of Christ, being the love of God, is effective and fruitful in producing all the good things which he wills for his beloved. He loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us into covenant. He loves us into heaven. So this is why Paul asks in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, what is the practical cash value of all this gospel from verses 1 through 30? And Paul then, as you've seen, starts asking questions. He asks hard questions. He isn't protecting some itty-bitty little wishful thinking from the rough realities of life. He is unleashing this massive gospel hope against everything that terrifies us. He wants us to think it through so that we settle into a deep enjoyment, not strong enough, assurance that God will love us powerfully forever with a power that exceeds everything contrary to his love, including everything in us that's contrary to his love. So in verses 31 to 39, Paul asks four unanswerable questions. Question 1, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, man. He's got an attitude, y'all. I love that. There's no victimhood here. There's no self-pity, no hand-wringing. He's just got this bright confidence in God, and that is where God wants to take all of us. If God is for us, who is against us? Bring it on. We're not asking the question, who is against us? There's a lot against us. Our past is against us. The devil is against us. The world is against us. And if we try to go up against all that, thinking, you know, this time we're going to get it right, this time I really mean it, Lord, we're kidding ourselves. So Paul doesn't ask who's against us. He asks, if God is for us, who's against us? So you, you, you need to personalize this. God is for you. God is not against you. He is not looking at you tonight with a kind of negative scrutiny that says, gotcha. 
God is not even waiting to see how things are going to turn out in your case. God is for you. He is your ally. In the end, He is your only ally. He said to us, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. He calls us friends. We didn't talk Him into it. He told us. And this strong friend also said to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This friend said to us, be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This friend said to us, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again to take you to be with me forever. He didn't just say, I go to prepare a place. He said, I go to prepare a place for you and for you and for you. So the minute you step into heaven, you're going to take a look around (laughs) and you're going to say, no way. He thought of me. He thought of me. He built this out with me in mind and you too. And he actually understands and connects with my crazy heart and what the kind of heaven I would actually love to be involved in forever. He said, yeah, I go to prepare a place for you. He is for us. You're not going to have to settle for anything in heaven. You can put your name in this verse. God is for. Fill in the blank. Put your name there. We don't deserve Him. But to God, that isn't a reason not to love us. To God, that's actually a reason to love us all the more. In all, God loves the undeserving. God is for the undeserving. That's the whole point of the gospel. So, here's how big this is. This is more than a general benevolence toward you, though that's wonderful. Given who God is, if God is for you, then in all, you see, If God created all things, then all things have some kind of relationship and connection with God, right? Okay. If God created all things, all things are related to God, then all things are related to each other too because we live in a coherent universe. It's like really good software. So in all that God is doing in the world tonight at this moment, in all that God is doing because He is God, He is for you. Now, let's make this concrete. It's 636 in Los Angeles, California. Well, let's just, we won't go far. New York City. I think it's 936 in New York, Eastern Time, right? Okay, so it's 936 on a Sunday night in New York City. And let's just, I'm, I'm going to guess there's a pretty good chance that on some street in New York City, right now, as I speak, there's a, you know, metro bus pulling over to a bus stop to let somebody on because they need to get home. You figure there's a chance in New York City that might be happening right now? Okay. Uh, well, in some way, the way God has built reality, because all things were created by God and relate to God and relate to one another, and it's all linked, 
and concatenated and interconnected, that bus in New York City, in the mind of God, in the purposes of God, in the wisdom of God, in the intentions of God, is somehow linked with your eternal benefit in Los Angeles, California tonight. As well as everything else going on in the world. In Santiago, Chile, Beijing, China, Paris, France, the jungles of Ecuador. That's the world we live in because God is for us and there is nothing marginalized, limited about God. If our future is going to go poof and disappear, God is going to have to go poof and disappear. Second question, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Where did God not spare his own son? At the cross. What happened at the cross? The father gave him up. The father abandoned him. When everything was on the line, all our sin was poured out upon the son who hung there in our place and God did not rescue him. God forsook him, gave him up. He cried out in pain. God didn't listen. He prayed. God didn't answer. Jesus wasn't saved so that we would be saved. That is what happened at the cross. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now, here's Paul's question about that. How will God not freely give us all things. Now, if God gave us his most costly, precious, sacred gift in Jesus, how could God possibly hold back on us now? Is God going to nickel and dime us now? Is that what we should, is that how God's going to treat us? Is that what we should expect, a reluctant God? That doesn't make any sense. So what's the point? The point is, if God gave up his son for us all, there is no limit to the love of God for us. We may wonder, how far will God go with me? At what point will God say to me, really? Really? I am so done. I mean, that's it. It's all I can take. I knew you'd be a headache. I didn't bargain for this. You've gone too far. The deal's off. I'm out. Will God ever say that to us? It's unthinkable. Why? Because we deserve to be treated well? Because we really aren't that bad? No. Because Jesus was abandoned in our place so that we will never be abandoned. God is as committed to us, therefore, as God is committed to His Son. Because He gave up, gave up His Son for us. If you belong to Jesus, you are in the love of God just as deeply as Jesus is in the love of God. It has nothing to do with your performance as a fine, outstanding Christian. It has everything to do with the cross where God sealed His love for you, the full extent of His love forever. So, God does not limit His love for you. God unlimits his love for you. We're the ones who love carefully. God loves high-maintenance sinners. 
When I see an uber-needy person coming my way, I, and you do the same, you know, I'm looking at my peripheral vision for an exit strategy. God sees me coming his, his way. God sees you coming his way. He lights up. He thinks this is going to be a good day. God loves with God-sized love. We can actually believe that and go to him with that confidence moment by moment and never hesitate. Having given us his son, God plans graciously, freely to give us all things, Paul says, everything. What's inside that? Select, double-click, a sinless personality with an immortal body in a renewed universe with a whole new human race, enjoying God at full tilt forever. That's your future because of the cross. Third question, verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? God does not want you feeling condemned. It is not God who uses condemnation to jerk people around and manipulate them into good behavior. That's what religion does. There's a lot of condemning religion in this world, but here is where God wants to take you. He wants to take you into an environment of deep, calm, peaceful, settled, zero condemnation. I'm in. I'm safe. Okay, now, as a child of the 60s, here is how I'm going to describe the path we take to get there. I call it the fourfold path to spiritual environment. Peace, baby. Um, <laughs> The first step in the fourfold path to spiritual enlightenment is the first step in the path is moral indifference. It's how we're all born. And many people keep living that way. Life is a playground. You make your own rules. Right and wrong don't matter. Winning is all that matters. Moral indifference. Second stage in the fourfold path to spiritual enlightenment is moral concern. You move from moral indifference to moral concern. That transition is not a Christian conversion. It is a human upgrade. Moral concern. These people start caring about doing the right thing. They start living upright lives. They look back at the people of moral indifference. They don't like what, I, what they see. They're concerned about the direction society is going and so forth. Now, some of these people of moral concern move on to the third step in the fourfold path, and that is moral despair. Moral indifference, moral concern, they crash, they burn, moral despair, they fail, they discover they're not moral people, their habits, passions, background, temptations are too strong, sooner or later they find out virtue isn't as simple as a raw choice. In some ways they just can't stop. That's moral despair. Some, fourthly, some moral failures finally look beyond themselves, and here's what they discover to their amazement. No condemnation in Christ. Hope in Christ. The gospel surprises them. The gospel says God loves moral failures. God does not condemn moral failures who come to Christ. God justifies them and pronounces them righteous. So suddenly they're righteous failures. And because it is God who justifies them, no one can de-justify them. There is no Supreme Court above God to reverse his verdict. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. How is that going to work? 
So this is what everybody in the whole L.A. area and everybody in the whole Nashville area must understand. The people in moral indifference really do need to wake up. The people of moral concern need to humble themselves. The people of moral despair need to know what a friend we have in Jesus. And the people who are now living in no condemnation in Christ just need to have a whole lot more fun. <laughs> We're not going to hell anymore, y'all. So we don't come to church to um, exalt our moral concern. We don't come to polish our moral success. We come to church as sinners, and we comfort our hearts. We comfort one another's heart in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and we come to rejoice in Him and praise Him with all our crazy hearts. We are in a no-condemnation relationship with God now. This is amazing. I love how Martin Luther... Um, he was, a, he was a fighter. He was a big believer in the devil, and he, know, he knew and experienced how Satan comes as that accusing voice between our two ears. And he knew how to fight. Here's what he um, counseled us about the, the, the practical value of justification by faith alone. When the devil tells us we are sinners, and therefore damned, we may answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. And the devil will say, no, you will be damned. And I will reply, no, for I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sin. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are and try to reduce me to heaviness and despair. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me weapons against yourself so that I can cut your throat with your own sword and tread you under my feet for Christ died for sinners. My sin is on his shoulders, not mine. So when you say I am a sinner, you do not terrify me. You comfort me immeasurably. <laughs> God, it says in verse 33, chose sinners as his elect. Why? Because God's deepest purpose is to, to, to glorify and to display his son as a successful savior. The father wants the son to shine as the savior of sinners. So God chooses as his elect, not the good people, but the bad people. He got first dibs and he chose us. He wasn't stuck with us. He chose us so that everybody can see Jesus is a world-class Savior. So here is the Christ-centeredness of the gospel. Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So it's already settled. It's final between the Father and the Son. Therefore, your sins cannot keep you from God as you turn to Jesus because God's whole point is to embrace moral failures who turn to Jesus. You can bring it all. Bring it all to Christ. He is at the right hand of God. Fourth and final question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he takes inventory, and it's serious. It's horrible. It's formidable. All these enemies of our happiness, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, for starters. 
The normalcy of society is a thin veneer. It has broken down before. It will break down again. And anyway, your own personal death might as well be World War III. It will be the end of the world for you. And it's going to happen. You have a birthday. You know that date on the calendar. You and I, friends, we also have a death day. We just don't know that day on the calendar. It's there. But on that day and everything else horrible that happens to us, do these horrible experiences prove that God no longer loves you, that He no longer cares for you, that He's turned on His heel and walked away? Paul comes up with this list of sufferings here, here in verse 35. That's life for people God loves. I'm so struck by the imagery of verse 36. For your sake, that is because we're following you. We're not running from you, Lord. We're following you for your sake because, of, because we accepted the call of Christ when he said, follow me. That's why we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He quotes Psalm 44. The imagery is grim. Sheep to be slaughtered. The world as one vast slaughterhouse. That is not pretty, but it is true to life, isn't it? But in all these things, not in some, but in all, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, Satan thinks if he just turns on the heat intensely enough, we will run from God. And when we suffer, we do weep, we do waver, but God will not let us go. Here's a more than conquerors. Here's, that is not Pious exaggeration. We are more than conquerors by going through living hell and the love of God keeps us true. Not our love for Him, but His love for us. We are weak. When we are buffeted, we fall to our feet and we lie there for a while on the ground and sort of bleed and twitch for a while, but then to our own amazement, we get back up again. It may take some time, but we get back up. We find ourselves saying, I have no idea what just happened to me. But one thing it can't be is the hatred of God. God loves me. God must have a loving purpose in this somehow, so I'm going to put one foot in front of the other here, and I'm going to find out how God is going to redeem this mess, because He will. We are more than conquerors in this way. We go into terrible suffering. The love of God goes with us into that terrible suffering. We emerge from that terrible suffering on the other side and instead of screaming at God and hating Him for it all, we find ourselves, perhaps to our own surprise, loving Him even more and believing in His love for us more than ever before. That's not just conquering, friends. That's more than conquerors. How can pain and loss and persecution and all the rest defeat us? When, like the three Jewish men in the book of Daniel, we find in the fires someone else in there with us as our faithful companion who will never leave us nor forsake us. So we're not victims. 
Your sufferings are not robbing you. Whatever you and I are going to go through for the rest of our lives, here is in fact what's going to happen. God is going to keep his hand on us such that our sufferings will only take us deeper into the love of God. That is your future. Now, we're going to end this in a special way. I've been preaching the gospel to you. Now you're going to preach the gospel to me. It's only fair. John Bunyan wrote <clears throat> in 1681, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote a wonderful book called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. It's all about the endless love of God, the Romans 8, 31 to 39 love of God, but he takes it from that wonderful sentence in John's gospel where our Lord says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast you out. The same message as Romans 8. So um, we're, this is a, a responsive reading, call in response, and uh, I am, oh shoot, it should say, Ray, I'm a serious sinner because that's my line, Oh, the underlying parts. Oh, but I liked it the way I did it because it was Ray, I'm a serious sinner, and then I had y'all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, well. I can understand. Well, there you go. <laughs> okay, so we're all good. So you are going to preach the gospel to me. All right, responsive reading, here we go. I'm a serious sinner. I've been sinning for 70 plus years. My heart can be hard as stone. With every two steps forward, I take one step back. I sin even when I know better. I might respond to God's mercy with more sin. I have nothing to offer but skill at failing. Okay, Lord, if you will never cast me out, count me in. God bless you.